We are in a series this summer in the book of Psalms. Uh, We're preaching through a number of Psalms out of what's called the fifth book of the Psalms. It's the last one. It starts with Psalm 107, which we did last week. Today is Psalm 112. But the the Psalms are are, are the song book of God's people. These are the songs that the people of God have been singing. I mean, some of them, or most of them, for thousands and thousands of years. And so we're sort of picking up on that, understanding uh, how, how do these Psalms teach us, how they teach us to deal with our emotions, with our lives, uh, with, with many different kinds of things. And so we are in Psalm 112 this morning, and Rachel is going to come and read it for us. But you can follow along either in your bulletin or, or obviously just scroll down. Rachel. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. We're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on that text. Now, you're likely aware of what's called police lineups the tactic used by police officers to see if an eyewitness can identify the perpetrator of of a crime. And the basic idea behind them is you line up a number of people who look like the accused, you know, generally the same height, skin color, age, whatever, and you see if a witness can pick a perpetrator out of the lineup. Now, studies actually show they're of limited usefulness, but that's, that's besides my point this morning. Let's say you lined up 10 random people from Canada, you know, some men, women, young, old, bunch of different ethnicities. Could you tell who is a Christian simply by looking at them? Well, probably not, because Christianity is, you know, reasonably diverse, you know, ethnically, age-wise. But let's say you could follow them around, say you could go home with them, you could go to work with them. How long do you think it would take you until you figured out which ones were Christians and which ones weren't? And if you can extend your imagination, how would you know? <laughs> is it the way that they talk? Is it the way they treat others? Is it some kind of spiritual habit that they employ? Psalm 112 is what's known as a wisdom psalm. And what, and what that means is it, it's a psalm. It's a song with practical advice, practical commentary on what a person who loves God looks like. Or perhaps to be more accurate, what, what God makes out of a person who loves him and fears him. But as you heard read, there was no comments on, on, on clothing or ethnicity or age. But it's all about the, the character, the actions, and some of the outcomes that are present in the life of a person who follows God. In other words, this psalmist, whose name is unknown to us, we don't know who wrote, who wrote it, but he's pretty firmly convinced that you could identify someone who follows God. Their life choices would be pretty obvious to you if you had a couple hours with them in their life. You couldn't pick them out of, of a police lineup, but there would be enough other stuff in their life that you could figure it out. So I want to take this psalm in three parts this morning. I want to first talk about joy in the Lord. Second, I'll talk about multiple joys, which will be a little bit different from that. And then part three, some hints and warnings that are kind of embedded here. Now, Psalm 112 has a prologue, which means there's a start to the psalm that isn't really part of the psalm, but it, 
kind of sets the table for everything else to come. The prologue is that first line containing just three words. Praise the Lord! Exclamation point. Seems like a pretty obvious statement. You know, God's people, they should be praising him. They should be singing to him. They should be making much of God in their lives. But this line prefaces a wisdom psalm. And this psalm that comes, did you notice it barely mentions God? Just two quick mentions in the rest of the psalm. So I think there's actually more here than just a command to sing and to praise God. As the psalmist tells the people to praise the Lord, what we find is that one of the reasons we should be doing that is as we discover God's handiwork in the world around us. After all, wisdom is simply kind of discovering the way the world works and living accordingly. Knowledge is learning facts about the world, but wisdom is knowing how the world works. For instance, you may know that you need, to, you need money to buy food or to buy shelter or whatever, but knowing how to make money, knowing how to spend money well, those are both matters of wisdom. And as we discover the paths of wisdom in the world, as we find out how to live well, the psalmist says this is a reason to praise God. So by prefacing this very practical psalm with a command to praise God, the psalmist is telling you, as you learn how to live life well, that's a reason to, to turn over your shoulder or look upward or whatever, but to marvel at the God who created the world in such a way that God's care and his love, his design for the world extends to how the poor are treated, how you deal with your possessions, how you lend money, the paths that we walk that lead to a good life. This too is part of what God has created. So praise the Lord. But look at the second part of verse one. It says there, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandment. Okay, we got to define a few of our terms so we understand what the psalmist is saying. First, blessed is the man. Now, blessed, of course, that means more than happy. It means something other than a life of ease. To help us understand, we might translate that word something like multiple joys or blessednesses, which I don't think that's a word. The second one, but, but I'll, I'll, here's what I'm trying to communicate. This psalm goes on to promise that the person who fears God will find themselves experiencing many different kinds of joys. They're, they're blessed in many different ways. The pursuit of God in his ways does not simply mean, well, now I've solved the spiritual aspect of life, um, but rather all aspects of life kind of fall into place. A person who follows and fears God, they can expect multiple kinds of joy in their life. They can expect the blessing of God. So blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Now, what does it mean to fear God? We, we discussed this briefly last week, but let me just say this. Is fearing God the same thing as being afraid of, you know, being attacked by a bear in Algonquin Park? Well, no, like that's, that's not exactly the same thing. Fear is not being used in the exact same way. To fear God means serious, reverent obedience. Fearing God means you take him very seriously. It doesn't mean that there can't be moments of joy and laughter in your relationship with God. Of course, fearing God is not a funeral procession. It's not what we're saying. It just means that God takes up space in your life. He's, he's weighty. His, his, he means something. And that's kind of reinforced by the next line, which, which he says, you know, th this person is greatly delighting in God's commands. So the obedience isn't drudgery. It's not like doing, well, this is a chore. I hate it, but I guess I have to do it. It's more like a great day at work or a great day of parenting. You know, when the kids are happy and, and you're having fun as well. Like it, it's a responsibility, yes, but it's, there's sort of joy to it as well. So we might kind of restate verse one in this way. The one who reverently and thoughtfully obeys God will experience multiple joys. Now, to be clear, the blessednesses that we're about to dive into, they only come because a person takes joy in the Lord. The relationship with God comes first. Everything else comes later. But just take this, this quick moment to evaluate right now. 
What is your relationship with God like? Is it full of joyful obedience? Is it drudgery? Is there a seriousness with which you take God? Because there's something important to recognize that if you obey God simply to be blessed, if you obey God simply because you think it's going to make you happier, you aren't going to make it. Because inevitably, there are going to be seasons of life when obeying him and fearing him, it's not going to make you happier. It's not going to make you wealthier or anything else. It's going to make life harder. It's going to make life more challenging. God must be feared and obeyed simply because he is God. That's who he is. If you make joy, if you make blessednesses the end goal, well, what you actually want is that, not God. Your functional God is happiness. So I guess I can put the question to you this way, and then we'll move on to the second point. What if you could have God but not get all the rest that this psalm promises? Would you still fear God? And I'm not saying you have to choose. I'm not saying you have to choose right now, Um, but but you might. Do you want God for who he is or do you just want the blessing? But that does lead us to part two, the blessings, the multiple joys. So with that question rattling around your head, let's examine uh, what's in store for the person who fears God. And let me quickly say though, wisdom literature Uh, describes what normally happens, not what always happens. So you should understand that Christians aren't going to experience all this psalm describes. They might only experience part of it. They might only experience it at certain times of their life. That does not mean such a a person who's not experiencing what this psalm tells us about, it doesn't mean they're not a Christian. It doesn't mean they don't fear God. Wisdom literature is, is trying to be normative. This is what normally happens. But you'll kind of see that as we go through it. I'll give you the caveats along the way. And also understand that all these joys are gifts from God. None of them are achieved by the people of God. Even the internal character transformation this psalm talks about, that too is a work of God. If you have some of these joys then, these blessings, that's a reason to return thanks to God. But anyways, I got six things. We're going to move fairly quickly, but six things that characterize the life of a person who who fears God. Six kinds of joy. First, offspring blessed. The children and grandchildren of the one who fear God will be mighty in the land. That's, in, that's there in verse two. Now that word mighty, does that refer to large muscles or something like that? Uh, it, it does refer to military success. You can understand it that way. But it also has this very broad general meaning of, of being successful in life, progressing in life, in, in wealth, in reputation, in wisdom and character. These offspring will be, will be leaders of their community in ma- many ways, not because they have positions of power necessarily, but, but by their character. Each generation that, that follows the one who fears God will be blessed primarily, the psalm says, because they too are upright, that they followed in the ways of their parents. And this psalm tells us something that we kind of know sociologically, that Christian faith tends to grow and progress through families. The normal course of the world, the way God has wired it, is that parents teach their children the faith. And look, not all children believe. We, we know that. That's not the fault of the parents. But generally, the Christian faith is passed on through family lines. If your children do believe, if they, if they are Christians, this is, this is one of the kinds of joys God gives. A Christian can generally expect that the blessing of God is extended to their children. And we hope and we pray and expect that God will lead our children, if you have them, or maybe you'll have them in the future, that God will lead our children to become mighty. In, in every sense of that word, that they'll progress. And over and over in the scriptures, God promises uh, love to generation after generation of those who fear him. That God God works through families to bless their offspring. Second, those who fear God are enriched. Now we have to be careful with this one to hear what the psalm is and is not saying. But verse three says, wealth and riches are in the house of the one who fears God. Now, if you're broke, (laughs) if you're 
If you're in, in poverty or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean you have less faith. In, in many places, the scriptures commend the faith of the poor. But think about it this way. If you take God's commands seriously and take him seriously, in general, you'll be nudged toward a life that's full of hard work, that has the absence of crime, a stable family life, and away from things that cause harm, foolish spending, greed, all that stuff. If we had time, I could point out where all these things exist in the scriptures. But a, a lot of the time, that combination will lead to economic prosperity. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be rich. You're not going to be a billionaire, you know, in all likelihood. But the, the sense of the word here, when it says wealth and riches, it, it means something like having sufficient riches, that the righteous have enough. In Ecclesiastes, another, another wisdom book, the author actually asks God to spare him from both great wealth and great poverty. He's like, just, just land me somewhere in the middle because both ends of, of the spectrum have temptation. But in general, the people of God are enriched in every way. God blesses their relationships, their works, their, their, their life in, in the city or on the street or wherever they live. They're provided for. And the good deeds they do along the way, their righteousness, their right living, God makes it endure. So God enriches them. But third, those who fear God grow to act like God. If you look at verse four, it says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright and he's gracious and merciful and righteous. Now look, when do you need light? Well, you need light when night falls and, and room gets dark. And so actually in sort of a little twist here, the upright person is actually in a dark place in verse four. Things have not gone well. He's in some kind of darkness, but light will dawn for him. A candle will twinkle. And really this image of light coming into darkness, it, it signifies hope. The one who fears God knows even when things are going wrong, God is still at work. And in darkness or in light, God's still working on to renovate their character. Have you ever read a, a how-to book by a famous person? I don't, I don't mean a biography, but one of those like book of, of principles and lessons. Uh, I recently read a book called Principles by this business person named Ray Diallo. And he founded an investment firm called Bridgewater Associates. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. But as you read principles and, and Mr. Diallo tells you, you know, here's how you should make decisions. Here's how you should organize your business and your life. Here's how you can invest wisely. He, he gives you his life as a kind of template to follow. And along the way, you get a sense of who this guy is. And if you took Diallo's book seriously, let's say you began to memorize it. Let's say you applied it. Let's say you got into a discussion group where, where you would break it down and try to figure it out. Well, over time, you'd become more and more like Ray Diallo. And in a somewhat similar way, though the, the Bible is not a, a book of principles exactly. It's not just lessons. It's, it's a story of God saving a people for himself. Yet as a person studies it, as they sort of obey its commands, as they investigate its relevance to their life, as a person sort of burrows into uh, the life of Christ, understand how Jesus changes everything, then God uses that process to make a person more like himself. And that's really what this verse is referring to, that over time, the one who fears God becomes more and more gracious, which means that they're more and more giving and generous, even in the face of animosity. They become more and more merciful, which means they're more kind to those who are hurting. They become more and more righteous, which means they're more full of good deeds. And of course, all of these words, all these attributes also describe God. A person who fears God can expect over and over, or that over time, God will shape their obedience into virtue. What I mean by that is that uh, imagine uh, merc being merciful was less of a choice and more of an instinct. Imagine if you were patient, like Randy was praying for this morning. Imagine if you were patient by instinct instead of by choice. 
Imagine you were predisposed to generosity, not stinginess. The Psalm says that is what God is producing in the people who fear him. He's producing himself, his own character. Fourth, the one who fears God will become a good neighbor in business and life. This is a little bit like the first verse in, in that it's kind of talking about the character or the kind of person God blesses, but there are also some hints of what the people of God become over time. Verse five talks about dealing generously and lending. And interestingly, dealing generously, it's actually a variation on the word for grace, which we just discussed. But the idea here is that a person who fears God isn't always looking for a return. They're lending their possessions to neighbors. They aren't being cutthroats at work, you know, stepping on other people. Wherever they are, they choose to act like God. Grace, after all, is unmerited. It's, it's, it's not earned in any way. It gives with no expectation of return. Now, this is balanced out somewhat by the next line that insists he conducts his affairs with justice. The, pers- the person who fears God, they're always making good and right decisions. They're not getting themselves into trouble because they've given everything away. They aren't being foolish. And verse 9 is similar if you skip down there, but it also includes the idea of giving to the poor. And so it's expanding the circle of generosity from the people you know to the people you don't know. The Bible doesn't take any time to form a theory about why a person's poor, what may or may not have happened in their life to get them to this point. There's no value judgments being made in verse 9. The psalm says, if you're a person who fears God, you'll be merciful to the needy people that you come across, to the poor people you come across, that they they, they will go out of their way to give to the one who needs it. Now, just because you're a Christian, doesn't mean you can't negotiate strongly. doesn't mean you, you can't get a, get, a, get a bargain. It just means you're dealing honestly. You're dealing fairly. You're trying to be a good neighbor in all areas of your life. You're busy making good, right, and generous arrangements. Now, fifth, the one who fears God endures. This is the sense of verse six, where we see a person not shaken by the events of life. Even when things go badly, they're not disturbed by that. They're not, they're not tipping over. They're not dislodged from their trust in God. But they go on and on, enduring, in a sense, forever. Now, look, in 100 years, not very many of us will be remembered. (laughs) Maybe we'll be grandparents, great-grandparents. Maybe we'll just be kind of a foggy memory of a person who once existed. Not many of us are going to get statues, plaques, even the inscriptions on our gravestones. They'll they'll be erased eventually by, you know, wind and rain. But in the mind of God and in the effects a life has, we are remembered. And in the heart of a person who fears God, then there is this kind of steadfastness. Not because they're more hardy than other people, or they've achieved a kind of resolve, or, or they're, they're more mature than everyone else, and they don't care about the opinions of others. No, no. God produces in the hearts of his people a reliance on him. He becomes the anchor. And verse 7 is exactly that same vein. Such a person does not fear bad news, has a firm heart, they trust in God, Beginning of verse 8, the same theme. They have steady hearts. They won't be afraid. Can you imagine not being swayed by bad news? And I'm not just talking about being fearful. Because some of us respond to bad news with fear. Others of us respond to bad news with asserting a kind of confidence to to prove to everyone that we aren't afraid after all. For instance, uh, many of you are probably aware, the, the recent heat dome, as they called it, in British Columbia, the Pacific Northwest, sent temperatures to record highs. Now, if you followed that or read about that, you'll probably know this, but some people on social media in the news clearly responded with fear. They're like, man, this signals a a new climate emergency and, you know, what are the long-term effects going to be and and climate refugees and and oceans and things like that. There's there's sort of this undercurrent of fear about the future. But other articles I read took the very opposite stance, insisting 
everything's fine. If you're worried about this, you're overreacting. And I'm not really here to debate the science, but the undercurrent of the second set of articles was sometimes so strident and so forceful that they, they were trying to reassure themselves or prove to everyone that, that they weren't afraid. What, what I'm saying is, imagine a person who hears the bad news about a heat wave and has a firm heart, doesn't descend either into fear, but neither wanders off into pride. And you're like, climate's not really my thing. Okay, what, what about a bad day with a bad stock market news? Or what about you just get a terrible mark back on a test and it's going to make you fail or kind of wreck your class? Just imagine a person not swayed in either direction by bad news. What if you didn't have to end in pride or despair? That's what God is producing in his people over time. Resilient, trusting hearts that deal honestly with bad news. Now, if you find yourself fearful or prideful, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means God's work is still in progress. This is what he's doing in you. Now, sixth and finally, the one who fears God is kept safe from adversaries. See this at the end of verse eight, the Psalm promises, the one who fears God will look in triumph on his adversaries. And in verse nine, that his horn will be exalted in honor. Now that's sort of a weird phrase, but by way of definition, you need to understand that horn, he's talking about the animal kingdom here, where the animals who have the biggest horns, the biggest tusks or whatever, that's a symbol of strength and power, military might. If you're the elephant with the biggest sharpest, I don't know if they're sharp, the biggest longest tusks, you know, you'll rule the herd. And in Hebrew, to have a horn that's exalted, that's talking about a ruler, a king, someone who has strength and power and might, often in relation to, to enemies. But anyways, the emphasis in the psalm is not a person who fears God that they're going to be gloating over their enemies, but that God will deal with those who oppose the one who fears him. God will make them strong and secure. The, the God fear isn't exalting their own horn, but is lifted up by God. And this is similar to what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, you don't need to fear those who, who destroy the body. You should fear God who, destroys both the, who can destroy both the body and the soul. So you can expect, if you fear God, that God will judge rightly. He'll take care of things. He'll balance the scales. Now, let's take a moment to summarize. because We've kind of bounced through a lot of things here. This psalm, remember, it's teaching the way things normally are. The, the, the normal path for those who fear God is to experience multiple joys. That God is working to to enrich and develop and mature and grow his people into healthy people who are blessed in this life and the life to come. And this psalm then is an encouragement to fear God. It's a promise of God's blessing and favor towards those who joyfully obey him. Let's turn to part three, hints and warning. Now I've mentioned a little little piece of this, but the psalm has hints that not everything is perfect for the one who who fears God. I said in verse four, uh, this person is in, the one who fears God is actually in darkness. It is in need of light. But also in verse eight, notice they have enemies and need assistance. In verse seven, they are getting bad news and need strengthening in their hearts. In other words, God is working and blessing them in, in some hard things that don't seem like blessing. <laughs> and you know, the rest of the scriptures will tell us that, that difficulties, hardships are one of the normal means that push us toward God. Maybe think about it this way. Picture for a moment a sin in your life that you've had trouble shaking. Take a moment to think about what that would be. Lust, impatience, greed, selfishness, whatever. Take a moment to think about that. If you're a Christian, I bet you have prayed, at least a little bit, that God would take that sin away, that he would help you get clear of it. Is there a large helicopter going over right now? We'll pause for just one second.
So if you're a Christian, I bet you've prayed at least a little bit that God would, would, would help you get clear of it, that he would take that sin away. And the scriptures tell us, they reassure us, God is against sin. He doesn't want you to sin. He provides weight of temp- temptation. Like that's all true. But what if he, in response to prayer, immediately took away your inclination to that sin and made you totally free? Would you pray more or less in the future? Would you, would you draw closer to God or be further from God? Again, I'm not saying God doesn't send sin to make us draw near to him. God doesn't tempt us. The scriptures are absolutely clear on that point. I'm saying maybe God's using sin. He's using hardship. He's using seasons of darkness, seasons of bad news to draw us closer to him, to draw in those who fear him. I guess I'm trying to argue that you need to reorient your understanding of the hard parts of your life, the things that, that really plague you. Even Paul, you know, at one point, it's like he, three times, like I got this thorn, I'm having this problem, God, could you take it away? And God's like, no, you're fine. I'm here for you. In a strange way, these hardships are part of the blessings of God. Not because they're good, but because God is so wise, he's so powerful, he's so strong that he can bend them all to make you more like himself. So even your hard moments become blessings. You know, we often sing the song, Eternal Weight of Glory here at our church by uh, Wendell Kimbrew. Uh, Let me read a couple of the lines to you. We will see our wounded savior. We'll behold him face to face and we'll hear our anguished stories sung as victory songs of grace. Every year we thought was wasted. Every night we cried how long all will be a passing moment in our savior's victory song. Kimbrew is capturing this that not all blessings sort of look like blessings, that, that, that even our anguish stories, even our hardships, these, these too are part of the victory song of grace. So blessed is the one who fears God, like yes and amen, but I'm telling you, it might not always feel that way. Now, what about the warning? We'll look at verse 10. The wicked sees what God is doing in the life of the one who fears God and is angry about it. He gnashes his teeth. That's sort of like a grinding of the teeth, but ultimately it's kind of said, the psalm is saying, um, he's all bark and no bite. <laughs> he, can, he can gnash his teeth. He can kind of get mad about it, but he can't do anything because God's far more powerful. And then verse 10 tells us the wicked person just melts away and his desires perish. So the psalm kind of has a blunt warning. kind of ends on this like, ooh, like that. You don't want to be on the opposite side of God. You shouldn't want to be angry when other people benefit. You shouldn't be a person who gets jealous of other people's success. But of course, the trouble is on some days, I'm like verses one through nine trying to fear God. I'm trying to let him change me. I can see him working in my life. I can understand that he's blessing me. But other days, other moments, I'm more like verse 10. Angry, bitter, jealous, wanting the wrong things, find myself opposing God. See, we must remember this psalm is not written to Philistines to warn them or to the Babylonians being like, hey, you guys better shape up. This is written to the people of God. It's written to the Israelites. It's warning them. It's telling them not all of you are going to enter the kingdom of God because the heart is deceitful. So what do we do if we have some days like verses one through nine, but other days like verse 10? What do we do? Well, we must understand that this Psalm points beyond itself. See, how can God welcome and bless people who fear him sometimes, but are jealous and greedy other times? How can God bless those who are generous sometimes, but stingy and bitter other times? Look again at verse one. Blessed is the one who fears God. None of us can live up to that because we can't do it all the time. We can't continually take great delight in obeying God. 
but there was one who did. When Jesus Christ comes to earth, he fears God without any bad days. <laughs> he greatly delighted in everything his father commands to the point of death. He kept the law in all parts. He was without blemish. He didn't do it for the reward. He did it for love. And therefore, all along the way, the father kept saying of the son, I am well pleased with you. I'm happy with you. I will bless you. See, Jesus lived up to Psalm 112. Everything we read here, he was generous. He was full of righteousness. He acted with grace. He was, with a, he was just. His heart did not fear bad news. He was merciful. And instead of hoarding his reward, he spent it on our behalf. Or you might say he traded it. On the cross, he took up your half-hearted, mediocre record, and he gave you his spotless life. On the cross, Jesus took up the cursedness of verse 10. That he was melted away. That he perished. That others might live and grow strong and healthy and be blessed by God. See, listen, how can you be reassured in your heart of hearts that God will act the way this psalm promises to those who fear him? Because he sees, the, he sees us the way he saw his son. And he delights in his son, and he takes joy in his son. So there may be days when your heart condemns you, but let the presence, let the, let the record of Christ reassure you. And turn your eyes to the Savior. Enjoy the blessings of God because of what Christ has done. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Thank you for the promises here. The, the, the multiple joys promised to those who, who, who love you and fear, fear you and obey you. We long to be those people. Yet we know we fail. We know that we fall short. We pray that you would help us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he perfectly fulfilled this psalm. May we look to him. May we rejoice in him. And may we be continually united with him that his life, his life might be replicated in our own. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.